It's, it's the words of Nehemiah. Uh, it happened in the month Chislev. And his brother comes to him and tells him about what's happened in Jerusalem. And then he said, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I fasted and prayed. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And it goes on, uh, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful. Grant him compassion before this man. And he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. So the first thing I want to say about him, he, he, he was a prayerful man. Everything he did, he prayed about. I worked it out. In the first... It says it happened in the month of Chislev, which is November. And then um, when he stands before the king, he says it happened, it came about in the month of Nisa. That's four months. So for four months, he was praying, he was fasting, and you'll find 12 times uh, in the book of Nehemiah that, that Nehemiah prayed. He was a man of prayer. It took 52 days to build the wall, but he prayed for, if a month is 30 days, he prayed for 120 days before he set out and embarked upon his mission. So he, he, he was a prayerful man, um, but not just that, he was a practical man. He was very well organized. It says he went and studied the walls and the gates. He, he helped with the cementing. It's, it's terrific, isn't it? If you get a leader who's not only prayerful, but he's practical as well, because uh, uh, I'm not particularly practical, but my wife is. So as a combination of, uh, we were dual pastors in our church in Orpington, and it worked brilliantly because Yvonne was practical. He was an emotional man. He was a man with deep feelings. Uh, he showed great sorrow, if you read the book, and great happiness. He could be very angry. It says in the last chapter, he pulled people's hair out. You read it, chapter 13, it says, uh, he said, I was so angry with them, I cursed them, and I pulled their hair out, which is a really odd thing to do, and not one that we would recommend uh, leadership should employ. He... It, 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 he, 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 was a, he was a social man. He was brilliant at personal management. He, he was able to draw alongside people. He, he was a booster of people's morale. And, and, you know, today we need our morale lifted, don't we? I mean, I'll say a little bit more about this stuff. But uh, if, you, if you study history and the history of our country... It was people who put morale into us that made us go on and succeed and do things. So this man, powerful, practical, joyful, sorrow, sorrowful, tough and tender. Um, but above all, he was a man of moral authority. And I, I've, I've been thinking about that this week. Uh, Nehemiah was a man of moral authority. He 
he had been given letters by the king, because if you read the book of Nehemiah, it says that uh, after he fasted and prayed, he, he went before the king, um, and uh, the king saw he'd got a sad face. Um, and the king, I mean, oriental deities in those days. Man, if you stood in front of a king with a miserable face, I mean, look at that North Korean bloke. He shoots his generals if they're not smiling when he's speaking to them. I mean, that's what they were like. And he comes up with a sad face. So he must have been very close to this king. Uh, And one of the things I really like about Nehemiah is that he liked his wine. He was the king's cupbearer. He had to taste the wine before the king got it. It's such a personal, it's a bit like being the, the king's physiotherapist or something like that. He, he was able to get very close. But he was a man who had moral authority. He'd got letters. He had got governmental authority. So he could have used his governmental authority to get his way when he went to Jerusalem to uh, build the wars. But this man, think about him, he was able to motivate ordinary lay people to discover their gifts and realize things and do things that they thought they couldn't do. Uh, He built the wall, not with bricklayers, but with priests, with women, with uh, jewelers, goldsmiths, um, and another wonderful thing, that, that I've forgotten, but different people. He mobilized them. He had an authority from God that was able to mobilize people and get them going and get them released in their giftings. And uh, you know what? We, we've just, well, we retired about nearly a year ago. We ran a church in Orpington, uh, a Baptist church for nearly 20 years. Um, And I got to a point where I had, you know, because in a Baptist church, you have the omnicompetent pastor uh, who is good at preaching, good at counseling. He's a funeral director. Uh, He's a man who, a one-man ministry. (laughs) And this is what our church was like. And after a while, I said to them, I had a meeting with them, and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I said, you can get rid of me if you like. I I can't do it. I can't do all of this stuff. And I said, furthermore, I want to choose my own ministry team. And I don't want deacons anymore who are elected by you. I want to choose the people. (laughs) Can you imagine standing in front of a... A Baptist church, members of the Baptist Union, and telling them. And they said, All right, you can do it. So, my wife, who is a planner, was able to divide our church up into teams to such a degree uh, that the new pastor, he comes around to see us and he says, John, I can't understand it. He said, It's so easy. He said, I, I used to have to do everything in my previous church. He said, but somehow you, you have released people into their giftings. You've enabled people to see that they, things they thought they couldn't do, they can do. 
Uh, and I did myself out of a job, really, by doing that. But even the new pastor comes around and, and, and says that. This guy, Nehemiah, he, he had such a quality of moral authority that he was able to release people. Do you know what else he did? He, because I don't know how many thousands went back after the, um, the exile, but the Jews, because Jews are very good with money. You know that, don't you? You know they're brilliant with money. Um, I, I heard David Pawson tell a little story of uh, a Jewish man in New York who had a shop and two department stores built either side of him uh, and was going to put him out of business. But he thought about it and he renamed his shop The Way In. <laughs> business has never been so good. But, but through usury and through mortgages and lending, loads of people were in trouble in Jerusalem. But because of the moral authority of a man called Nehemiah, he equalized the economics. He got them to repent. I mean, that's fantastic. He got these old Jewish blokes, these bankers, these blokes with the money, and he got them to repent and to call it sin and to, and to give the money back and to enable other people. I mean, this is the quality of this man. This is why I like him. He, he, he's a brilliant bloke. He's got moral authority. When I think about moral authority in our country, who has got moral authority in our country? Piers Morgan? Simon Cowell? You look back in history and... Uh, I'm thinking about a man called William Wilberforce. Listen, William Wilberforce, without the use of governmental power, without the use of stirring people up into hatred, into rioting, he managed to get through Parliament, and a lot of the parliamentarians were into the slave trade, And he, through his moral authority, because he was a lover of God, he got something so sensationally changed because of his authority. Nehemiah, you're a man of moral authority. Where are the men and women in our country today who've got moral authority. I mean, I'm not going to make any suggestions, but it's desperately difficult, isn't it? Are you, are you like me? Uh, he was a man with moral authority. He was a man with a mission. Do you know what? You and I, we are created to have a mission. And if we don't find a mission in our lives, because we are wired up that way for sense, congruity, uh, if we don't have a mission, we'll find a substitute. Because we can't live with the absence of purpose in our lives. If we don't live out our God-assigned missions, we live... What my favorite author, John Ortberg, says, we have a shadow mission. So I want to challenge you this morning. <laughs> What's a shadow mission? It's, it's a 
Carl Jung, who was the son of a pastor, uh, used to talk a lot about our shadow side, our shadow self. Um, when, I, when I was younger, I used to have a repeat dream. It's a bit of psychology. I used to have a repeat dream, and I'd be in the dark, and I'd be trying to get in my house, and a man would come out of the darkness and attack me, and my fists, my, my arms would break, and I couldn't fight him. And, he used to, and I used to wake up regularly shouting in the middle of the night. And then it stopped when I realized who that man was, and it was me. The side of myself that I hated, that I didn't like. It, it was my shadow self, and it frightened me. And, uh, you know, it's all part of the healing that comes to us, isn't it? Uh, but, but shadow mission, it's, it's what you'll do if you switch on to autopilot and you drift in life and you just do what you want to do. And I don't give a damn for anybody because I'm just going to sit here and watch telly and let the world go to hell. It's that kind of thing. And I, I want to challenge you this morning (laughs) is it shadow mission or have you got a mission have you found out have you been released into your motivational giftings and you know you know why you're here mission I you know Nehemiah he, he, he could have stayed on as a cupbearer. I mean, you know that Babylon, it was great. I mean, the Jews loved it. They didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> he had a pucker job. <laughs> he could easily have said, yes, I do. I, but God gives him a mission. What was Frodo's mission in Lord of the Rings? It was to... Take the ring and drop it in the fires of doom. And his biggest struggle with it was not all the external factors. It was his desire to have the ring. So there's a, you you can see it. You can see it with Esther in the Bible. I mean, fantastic. These stories, by the way, Ezra, Nehemiah. Esther, uh, probably that king, uh, um, Artaxerxes, uh, was probably put there by Esther because she'd won favor with the king. And this was the king's son. So this was Esther's stepson. I reckon she got the job for him. It's not what you know in life, is it? It's who you know. And she, she could have chosen her shadow mission because... God had chosen a beauty queen. (laughs) You're here for such a time as this. We're here for such a time as this. And, And that banal, futile, shadow mission that I might be serving, whether it's serving myself or my flesh in some way, when God is saying, come on, I've got a job for you. Will you do it? Nehemiah woke people up to their full potential. 
I said he pulled their hair out to wake them up. And I think we need waking up. Because sleepwalking on the inside is what we do. We, for whatever reason, we numb out in front of our computers and our televisions. We fantasize about the past. We romanticize the future. And we forget the moment. We forget the moment where God wants to... I was going to Martin, the dentist in Catford, a couple of weeks ago, and I've walked past a van and it's got... There are no valuables inside this car. I banged on it. I said, oh, mate, there are valuables inside this car and it's you. Do you know that God loves you? Oh, blimey. Wasn't expecting that, was I? <laughs> I don't want to miss the moment. I went to get an iPhone for Yvonne. And uh, I went into the O2 shop in Orpington. And this girl serving me. And she's saying, so twice she said, oh, Jesus Christ, she says. And then she said it again. And then I said, before you say that name again, I said, by the way, that means a lot to me. I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to use that name, that very name. And she looked at me and she said, oh, will you? I said, yeah, well, what do you want me to pray? She said, well, I'm having a baby. And uh, I asked her permission (laughs) and I put my hand on the baby and I prayed in the name of Jesus. And she wept and the shop, loads of people in there, you know what it's like. (laughs) But I love it because it's walking with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's prayer. It, it's, um, uh, I, I find prayer hard. That's why I walk a lot. That's why I've walked through 19 countries uh, to pray. But, but listen, the kingdom of God is not some religious institution. It's not some theological theory. It is a state of wakefulness. And I think what Jesus did, he walked around and he woke people up. It's like Narnia, isn't it, with those statues. (laughs) And he breathes on them, Aslan. You remember that? Have you seen that? They come alive. And when the hot breath of the Son of God breathes on us, we start coming alive. Now listen, we are, I, I could preach on all the walls in society that have broken down and how awful it is and all the stuff that's going on. And uh, I, Okay, I'll, I'll just say this. I, I, think, I think all the issues, transgender, same-sex marriages, I think they're just people who have lost their way. And you know why? Because we have lost our way. We've lost our way, brothers and sisters. We really have. And we've lost our way because we've got such crap views about God. People are lost. And people say to us sometimes, you've heard them, I'm lost. Do you know lostness presupposes that you have an owner? If you're feeling lost this morning, you have got an owner and he's looking for you. 
not to put you on a lead and keep him tight to yourself, but an owner who loves you. And what I love about the Lord Jesus is that he has come to give us a different interpretation of God. God, who in time past spoke to us through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. It's called son language. It's different. It's completely different. And what we need to see when we read the Old Testament is a more of a Christ-centered God. And we can. And sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I think, oh, that God, you need to accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. <laughs> which of course he had and you can find grace in the Old Testament and people we have got to realign ourselves with the character of God and as I I mean I've been around this stuff now for 57 years and as I get older nearly 77, the thing that amazes me most is God. I didn't know you were like that. I never realized you're so wonderful. See, I, I was brought up on jazz and rock and roll and the goon show and Winifred Atwell's other piano and I've lost you there, haven't I? And my old mum, she used to give me the seven most hated words, which was, you wait till your dad gets in. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> you wait till your dad gets in. <laughs> I, I think we, we build up these images, uh, and it's almost, you know, psychopathic. We, we, we have this view of a God who is nothing more than a critical spectator who wants to point out our faults and not a God who Jesus reveals. He exploded a theological atom bomb when he, denoted, when he showed us a God who, who runs. Runs. Because this God, he's the restorer of broken, lost people, lost coins, lost sheep. He loves us. He's after us. It's not us looking for God. It's... It's God who's looking for us. It's not the thirsty looking for water. It's the water of life looking for the thirsty. It's not the hungry looking for bread. It's the bread of life. And I, as soon as I got here this morning and sat praying, I knew the Lord Jesus was here with his hesed love. God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his this loyal love of God. I don't care. I want to, I've come here to say this. I don't care how far you've backslidden this week from God. It may be a long way out, but it's a short way back. Say amen again. We may have gone a long way out, but it's a short way back to the mercy of God. I... I think it's because we've lost our Trinitarian view of God, if I'm honest. And a Trinitarian view of God sees, Father, you have loved me from the foundation of the world. So Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit, they were lovers before the foundation of the world. So God knows how to love. God is love. The essential substance of deity is love. 
God loves you. We love him, says John, because he first loved us. And if you don't know that God loves you this morning, all that you do is just bring religion, because that's all it is. We love him because, my God, you really do love me. I think about the Holy Spirit, and I think I've heard talks on the Holy Spirit being like a bird. I mean, I know he came as a dove. And it's very sensitive and he flutters away as soon as you swear or fart or do something wrong. (laughs) And you know what? I don't think the Holy Spirit's like that at all. I think the Holy Spirit is more like a seasoned nurse in a mental ward (laughs) who knows our devious shenanigans, who knows the worst about us and puts up with us. And loves us and wants to help us. Because see, when we sin, we th- we're like Adam. We make for the bushes. We do a runner. That's what he did. He ran away. And, and, and the God who loved him was after him. Where are you? I'm looking for you. Can you hear his voice? I'm trying to find you. You keep running away from me. Because you've, you've built up this psychopathic image of me that you think I'm going to... This God. Wow. It's on the side of the human race. <coughs> God. This is the God. You've ever read the shack? There's a brilliant bit in it where uh, uh, she says the African-American version of a woman of God. <laughs> it's brilliant. She said, we, we rolled up our sleeves instead of running away. And we were determined to get involved in the mess of humanity. And if you're in a mess this morning, I would say to you, this God, this wonderful God. (laughs) I've got a friend. (coughs) One of the things that happened, uh, our toilet got blocked on the outside uh, thing, the manhole. It was blocked with all of our stuff. And my mate Ken came around with his diner rods. He said, I can't do it, John. He said, it's blocked. And he was standing in our manhole, up to his knees in our crap. (laughs) And he said, John, I'm going to have to do this with my bare hands. He said, look away now, because I'm going to have to do this with my bare hands. that's, That's what Jesus did. Did it with his bare hands. God. You know, that's the wall that needs to be rebuilt in our lives. It's not looking around and criticizing everything that's going on in the world. I'm just cheesed off with that, aren't you? I, I, I mean, okay, me and Evan, we've done a lot of prayer walking. But I was in a meeting in the Evangelical Alliance. And um, it was at the time when foot and mouth disease was getting rampant in this country. And all these prayer people, they're saying, it's all because we're homosexuals. It's all because... And all, <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, oh, this is rubbish. This is total rubbish. I, so what I did, I, I rang up farmers in Cumbria, and I said, I'm a Christian, and I'd really like to pray about foot and mouth in your area. 
And they said, we'd love it. Come up. And I got together. I got what we called a rapid response prayer group. All right, Nigel? Rapid response. Willing at the drop of a hat to go. And seven of us went up to Cumbria and we prayed. And uh, I just poured a bottle of wine out around, the, around their farms. And, that, and I'm not kidding you. They rang me up and said, when I got back from London, back to London, they said, foot and mouth stopped right where you prayed and where you poured out that wine. What do you think? Do you think prayer works? It's fantastic, isn't it? And I, I tell you, one of the problems with, with, uh, with us is you, you may not, but right at the heart and the beginning, uh, you know, with, with Augustine, who was a Neoplatonist and into Manichaeism, um, which was thematized into our philosophy in the church, and it was a philosophy of Doris Day, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. God's got it all fixed anyway. He'll work it all out. And God, (laughs) he could, couldn't he? But he has chosen to use you and me as co-regents, as viceroys, because he's a relational God. He wants a relationship. The greatest thing about God is that he wants to know us. I'm sitting watching, praying in my study, and I say, all right, God, I'm going now. I'm going to watch Man United on telly because I've got Sky Sports. And I heard his voice as clear as anything. Say, yeah, I'm coming with you. What do you think? See, what we've done with God, we've, we've marginalized him. We said, God, he's only interested in church, prayer, Bible studies. <laughs> well, of course he is. But God's got amazing interests. <laughs> I've just been loving watching our little great tits in the garden and their fledglings. Just wonderful, wonderful. It's God. And what we've done with Western theology, this is what we've done. We've said the first thing about God is holiness and sin. You heard that before? Holiness. And they are totally non-relational things, aren't they? Utterly non-relational. And that's what we've done with our Western theology. Because we've managed somehow for 17 centuries to eliminate the Trinitarian love of God. Now listen, when you and I know who we are, when we've got the love of God in us, instead of, you know, just shrink, it's what we do. We just shrink away and we, and, and here's, here's, I wanted just to finish uh, with 1 Peter. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. Whose hand? I think it's Putin? No. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be of sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. It says, keep sane and sober because there is an insane world going on. Keep sane and sober for your prayers. Keep fervent in your love for one another. So so it's our minds and our hearts and our giftings. And I, I just 
Well, I just think this. I just think we, first of all, are lovers of God. All that other stuff. How have we complicated the Christian life so much? When God says, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I, I love it, don't you? I, I'm walking down the road and this lad says to me, you haven't got a light for my fag, have you? I said, no, but I said, if you have a puff of the Holy Spirit and you let the smoke of God into your lungs, I said, he'll be, oh, blimey, he said, and went on and asked somebody else. <laughs> but it's like that, isn't it? It's like that when you've got the, the love of God in your heart. I love it. I love it. I want to be filled with this spirit moment by moment. I love the Holy Spirit. I love God. I think he's fantastic. And this morning, we're going to get anything out of Nehemiah and prayer that this is a relational God that loves you, loves you. It's calling you, calling you into his service. Step out of your shadow mission. It doesn't matter how far you may think you are away from God this morning. It's a very short way back. Amen? Yeah. Right, Lord, thank you for this man called Nehemiah. He's brilliant. And he was a happy man because he said the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, Lord, I, I want to pray for my friends here this morning. I want to pray, Lord, that we will, we will just return to you. We'll rebuild the wall, but we'll rebuild that part which is broken down, Lord, which has been our wrong understanding. We want to realign ourselves with your love, Lord Jesus, this morning. So I, I, I just pray. I pray that the love of God will just infiltrate people's hearts here this morning. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your anointing. And it's an anointing that comes from heaven, and it's an anointing that comes from you. We are sharers of your wonderful anointing here this morning. So, Father, open the eyes of our heart that we may see. Lord Jesus, touch us in our minds and our hearts. And, Lord, I pray for a... a I mean, it's probably already going on here, but Lord, I'm asking that all the giftings, Father, they might be brought forth and people might realize what their mission is and not their shadow mission. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a useful thing, by the way. If you know your shadow mission, say it out loud to yourself when you get home and then you'll realize just how banal and how futile it is. Why don't we stand and respond?